This evening's readings are taken from John chapter 6, which begins on page 1069 of your Bibles, 1069. And we're starting at verse 4. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. And then moving to verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal, to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And then finally, moving to verse 48, which is just on the next page. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Great. <clears throat> Do keep that open and... Um... That's what we're going to be looking at for the next few minutes. I'm going to pray as we begin. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would find your words to be bread to us and to satisfy us. We pray specifically that we would find Jesus satisfying this evening. Amen. We love to eat because we love being full. Or is that just me? The average person eats over 8 million meals in their lifetime. And that adds up, if you're conservative, to over 32,000 hours of eating. That's enough time to watch the epic film Die Hard 15,000 times, or to become a concert pianist, I'm told, three times over. All that time spent on eating. But we would be mad to think that eating is a waste of time, 
wouldn't we? Without food, we go through a series of increasingly severe symptoms. The first is we have the munchies, and the second is a mild tummy ache, and I start to get bad-tempered, and the third, I begin to eat anything, even yellow-tagged Sainsbury's goods, and the fourth, I might rummage in the bins, and then the fifth, you might say, is death. But somewhere down the line, hunger leads to death. We need to eat because we need food. We need food because food is life to us. And in this passage, Jesus makes the extravagant claim that he is food to us because he is life for us. And that with him, we will never get the spiritual munchies ever again. Our passage is a very well-known one, but it needs a bit of a rebrand. We will know it probably as the feeding of the 5,000. Um, You'll see if you read it carefully there, it was only 5,000 men. And uh, in our egalitarian society, I believe uh, women and children are just as valuable. I think we should count them too. The commentators lead us to believe that would be 10,000, 11,000, 12,000 possibly. One commentator I read uh, thought there would probably be 20,000 people here. That is a lot of people. Uh, That's just under the size of Craven Cottage Stadium, where Fulham Football Club play. That's 5,000 more than the Stoop, home of Harlequin's Rugby Stadium. So picture the scene. Jesus is there with his gaggle of disciples. They're in the middle of nowhere, even too far from Domino's Pizza to deliver. And there is a football stadium's worth of people approaching. I like to think that Jesus saw the dust before he saw the people on the horizon. No wonder his followers are panicked. Verse 7, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each person to have a bite. Let's break that down into today's UK average wage. Even £23,000 or thereabouts wouldn't sort this problem. And then something I think laughable happens, and we would laugh if we weren't so used to it. Have a look at verse 9. It is lovely and endearing. Andrew encourages a boy or could be a young man out from the crowd with his uh, packed lunch. And, and the young man is commendable in his charitable outlook, isn't he? He's noticed there's a problem. There's a huge football-sized crowd and they're hungry. Tummies are rumbling. And he's clutching his uh, paper bag of Greg's goods. And in it, we find there are a few um, barley loaves and some pickled fish. It's a standard packed lunch of Jesus' day. How sweet of him to offer it. How naive of him. How utterly naive. But then Jesus steps in as we know. Verse 11. He took the loaves, gave thanks to his father, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. When they all had enough to eat, they gathered up the leftovers, filled 12 baskets with the pieces. It must have been one of the most appreciated packed lunches in human history. It is the only meal I know of where there was more left over at the end than there was at the beginning. It is a picture of ultimate satisfaction, of fullness, of plenty, of life. And later on, Jesus tells us why he bothered to do it. He says, it was a great big advert for me, a great big billboard for who I am and what I came to do. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. He or she who comes to me will never go hungry. Marvelous. Now, if you're a regular here, you'll know this is the second in our little series looking at Jesus's I am sayings, as David said in his introduction. 
Last week, we looked at um, Jesus' title, I Am Who I Am. Uh, I Am Yahweh, that great title from the Old Testament. And here, Jesus adds a noun to that present tense of the verb to be, I am bread. I'm the bread of life. He tells us who Yahweh has always been for us. He adds detail. Now, again, I have three little words to guide us through. If you're a note taker, they're on the back of the notice sheet. Signs, first of all, blindness, second of all, and bread, third of all. And uh, the first one, I, I hope, will help us to read John's gospel, signs. The second will help us uh, to see Jesus, blindness, and the third to feed from Jesus, bread. So if you're ready, let's start with signs. Help us to read John's gospel. You'll notice if you've read chapter 6 before or you read it this evening, uh, David said he read it in preparation for this evening, it's a big debate and discussion, conversation about signs, miraculous signs. Have a look down at verse 24. You'll see that turn of phrase there. Some of the crowd who were fed the previous day, they chase Jesus across the lake, they get to Capernaum, and what they are interested in is uh, miraculous signs. Uh, Have a look on to verse 30. Uh, The people ask Jesus, uh, what miraculous sign will you give? And uh, that is the whole um, subject of the debate, miraculous signs. Now, as with last week, we do well to get our little grammar books out and work out how those two words relate to one another. Miraculous, first of all, and then signs. I think it's illuminating. The sign there, the word sign, is the noun. That is the thing which has been done. That is the focus of the debate. The word miraculous is the adjective. That is the word that describes the noun. So the sign is the thing, and what describes it is the word miraculous. In other words, John tells us that the main focus of this whole thing is not actually a miracle. He never uses the word miracle as a noun. He says it's a sign when it comes down to it. Now, sure, the signs happen to be miraculous, but they are more than miraculous. To call them miracles only, as I have to say I often do, Jesus' miracles, would be to confuse the adjective and the noun. They are signs. And here's the thing, signs point away from themselves, in this case, to somebody else. Miracles tend to point to themselves. And if you'll excuse the pun, that is their significance. Their significance is to point to the worker of the signs, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine for a moment if a long-lost, let's say, Canadian uncle wrote to me. And I recognize it's from him because I recognize the postmark on the envelope. And obviously I'm thrilled. And I go around telling you, my long-lost Canadian uncle, whom I never knew I had, has just written to me. It's amazing. And you might well respond to me by saying, yeah, okay. And what did he say to you, John? What did he reveal about himself? What did he write in the letter? And I'd say, well, I haven't opened the letter. I'm just excited by the postmark. It's from Canada. And you'd say, well, look, that's great, John, but why don't you rip open the, the, the envelope? Because envelopes tell us much less than letters tell us. Look at the detail. And it's the same with Jesus' signs here. If we leave it just with the postmark of heaven, just with the fact it's a supernatural event, we're just looking at the postmark on the envelope. There's much more that it reveals about Jesus. And I think Jesus would, would say to us, why don't you rip open the envelope, open the miracle, and see the sign?" 
See to whom it is pointing. See all the things it tells you about me. Don't just be content with heaven's postmark. Read what I reveal about myself. And so it is with this sign here. All too often, people are content with the miracle. Wow, that was amazing, like a firework display. But they don't see to whom the sign is pointing. And that's the case for all the people in this passage here who are in discussion with Jesus. So, secondly, blindness. They were blind to the sign. The spiritual blindness exhibited in this passage is extreme. Jesus, don't you think, if he was on the dole, would have been an excellent classroom teacher, really first class. He is so patient with the slowest people to learn, and he uses so many different angles to teach the same thing. Uh, John chapter 6 is one massive classroom lesson he gives. The visualade is given in the feeding of the 20,000, and then the classroom teacher bit comes from verses 25 and on. And he makes the point in so many different ways. Uh, Verse 29, you need to believe in me, he says. Verse 33, the bread is a metaphor. The bread is a he, it's a person. Verse 35, let me be really clear about this, the bread is me. I am the bread. Verse 51, let me repeat it, the bread is me. Verses 51 to 59, so the way the picture works is this. You know you can't just be near bread and benefit from it. You know you can't just look at bread and benefit from it and they're nodding. Well, it's the same with me. You can't just be near me or look at me to benefit from me. You need to believe in me. In the language of the metaphor, you need to eat me. It is a brilliant classroom lesson he gives. The sign and it's pointing to me because I satisfy I am the bread of life. A great lesson. But notice the response he gets in verse 60. It's not the response good teachers normally get. Many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Then verse 66, they vote with their feet. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed Jesus. Jesus' lesson is exquisitely clear, couldn't be clearer. And yet they are deeply blind. They have a spiritual glaucoma. And what causes it? What causes spiritual blindness like that? Well, I want to suggest we find two causes in verses 26 and 28. And I found this has given me much food for thought, if you'll excuse the pun. Verse 26, Jesus says, You're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. It's interesting, isn't it? Do you see those people... They were coming to Jesus to benefit from him personally. They came with selfish motives. They think Jesus is really rather good news. Not because of who he is, but because of what he gives them. They see in Jesus a walking, talking food bank. And that is a great way to cut bills. So they're thinking, I know the oil price is dropping and my regular outgoings on petrol and diesel for the car is dropping and that's really helping, let me tell you. But this Jesus guy, if I could just get him into my household, would really help. Because this guy needs no raw materials to make bread to feed 20,000 people and he requires no payment. Now this would be awesome. That is why they have come to Jesus. But that makes Jesus angry. Did you hear the anger in Jesus' voice? In verse 26, 
I think he's angry. I tell you the truth, you're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. We're always saying, aren't we, that Jesus wants everyone to come to him. Now that is very true, marvelously true on a fundamental level. But here's a riddle. How do you make Jesus angry by coming to him? How do you make Jesus angry by coming to him? Answer. By thinking of Jesus as useful for us more than being precious to us. Because here's the thing. Jesus came not to bring bread, but to be bread for us. And they just don't get that. They think he's a blessing vending machine. They fail to realize that he is the blessing that they're seeking. And I guess Valentine's Day, it's a good time to think about that. I guess some of us know how offensive that kind of attitude is. If someone says they love us, but really they only want us for what we give them, our body, our connections, our money, whatever it might be, then we don't call that love, we call that being used or being consumed. That is not love, that is transaction. And likewise, Jesus wants to be precious to us, not to be useful to us so much. Let me make a provocative couple of statements. For the Christian, Jesus should be precious to us regardless of all he's done for us. Provocative statement. Second one, Jesus is the pearl of great price regardless of his forgiveness, sanctification, and heaven. He just is the pearl of great price. What do you make of those? Now, of course, all those things are rightly wonderful. I'm not wishing to denigrate those things at all, but they are wonderful for this reason, supremely, because of whom they show Jesus to be. Not supremely because they bless us. And if we come to church or to the Bible, if we come to Jesus just asking him to be useful to us, to be the cherry blessing on the cake of our lives, then we'll be blind to Jesus himself being the blessing we were seeking all along. So selfish motives lead to spiritual glaucoma. They lead to spiritual blindness. But second reason behind their blindness, proud self-sufficiency. Have a look at the question in verse 28. I think verse 28 is a very arrogant question to ask. Then they asked Jesus, what must we do to do the work God requires? So they recognize that God has standards and requirements on human beings, but they just assume they can meet any standards God has for them. Like that. Their attitude is to say, just tell me what God wants me to do and I'll do it. Maybe I've got a free couple of hours on Monday afternoon. I'll, I'll do it, and then I'll get into, into God's good books. What does God want me to do? I'll, I'll do it. Just educate me, and then I shall please him. It's arrogant. It's proud self-sufficiency. The pastor and apologist Tim Keller has a great phrase which has stuck with me. He says, all you need is nothing, but too few people have that. All you need is nothing, but too few people have that. 
In other words, to become a follower of Jesus, all we need to do is to recognize that we contribute nothing of usefulness to him, nothing, only our sin. He does all the hard work. That is the only entry requirement. All you need is nothing. But too few people have that. You see, pride is such a big stumbling block when it comes to being a follower of Jesus. And I guess it makes sense. Who could fulfill all God's demands? We think about it in the confession, you know, at the beginning of the services, David said, every week. Have you made a New Year's resolution? Have you kept it? What Lenten abstinences are you embarking upon? Are you going to keep those? Did you keep last year's? We can't even keep our own standards, let alone God's. Now, what we need is nothing, but too few people have that. So signs, blindness, and finally, bread. And this is wonderful. This is where we get practical, and I have four little subheadings for this. The first is unlikely provision. The moment you've all been waiting for, the glorious illustration and visual aid. Can you read it at the back? I don't know whether you can read my writing. This is what we're looking at under unlikely provision. So cast your minds back to the feeding of the five or the seven or the 20,000 people. It is an English understatement, would you not say, that Jesus' provision seemed unlikely in that moment in time. I'm told that the average meal is recommended to be 450 calories. Um, 20,000 people would have required, therefore, 9 million calories just being churned out in one moment. That's why it would have cost so much money. Now, let's be charitable to that young man with his Greg's picnic and suggest that his meal carried 600 calories, let's say. That falls short by a measure, I think I'm right in saying, of 15,000 times. It is a very unlikely thing, would you not agree, that Jesus is going to feed 9 million calories worth of need with 600 calories worth of picnic. That is unlikely. I'm not a statistician, but I would say that's statistically unlikely. But Jesus loves to command people to do the unlikely things and to promise to do the unlikely things, and it's gracious of him to do so. That's the point. It's what he does with us. I want to suggest, this is where my majestic diagram comes into play, that Jesus gives us commands which seem patently ridiculous. So so in this illustration, he says, look, I'm going to feed these these people with with a picnic. No, you're not. That's ridiculous. That's so unlikely. Or or he he might command us to, to leave sex for marriage or to give our money away to God's work in the world to such a degree that it begins to hurt us even or... Uh, to speak boldly about Jesus in the office, in an antagonistic office. And and these commands he gives us just seem patently ridiculous. We think, that's unrealistic, Jesus. I'm not going to be able to do that. And the reason he gives such big elevated commands, partly, is to teach us to trust his promises. You see, every command he gives comes with a promise. Every command So the idea that we should be bold and speak to friends about Jesus in the office when people are antagonistic, it comes with the promise that he will give us the words to say. And the only way we'll discover the the plenty of that promise is by by obeying the command. Uh, Or giving our money away. So demanding, so hard to imagine myself doing that. But he does say, seek first my kingdom and all these things will be given unto you. The commands always come with a promise. 
And so there's this wonderful cycle which Jesus gets us into. As soon as we take the risk of obeying one of Jesus' commands, it forces us to trust his promise. And as we trust the promise, we think, wow, he really came good on that. He really fed 20,000 people with a picnic lunch. That was amazing. I'm going I'm to follow his next command he gives me. And, and that in, in, in due course will push me to the next promise to trust that. And so the whole cycle goes on. I guess you call it the opposite of a vicious cycle. It's a vital cycle. Now here's the thing. The beginning of the cycle is here. We, it has to start with us taking a risk in obeying one of Jesus' commands. Only then will we discover his promises are sufficient for us. Do you see? So it may be that there's somebody here, or a few of us here, maybe all of us, who are too worried about obeying Jesus in one area. There's one command, and you know what it is, and you think, I just don't trust that his promise is going to come good if I obey that command. It seems too radical. It seems too unlikely. And I want to say, go for it. I want you to say to me, go for it. Because that is the vital cycle. That's the beginning of the vital cycle. The more we obey, the more we trust. The more we obey, the more we trust. It's wonderful. So firstly, that's the first thing I'm going to spend longest on, unlikely provision. The next one, excessive provision. Verse 12, they all had enough to eat. They gathered the leftovers and filled 12 basketfuls. Now John here is making the point that Jesus makes excessive provision. I don't know whether any of you are cooks. I'm sure some of you are. But you know it's always a good meal when everyone has enough for leftovers. Sorry, seconds. And then there are leftovers left over for the Monday lunchtime, whatever, in your Tupperware. Love that, leftovers on on a Monday. And Jesus here does that in the most ultimate way, doesn't he here? And it's, it's the ultimate sign that Jesus is more than enough for us. I'm the bread and I'm excessively the bread. For you. I'm more than enough bread for you. But looking at the way I behave, personally speaking, I don't think I can really believe him. Let me share a tragedy with you. I meet so many Christians who are spiritually starving. They feel empty spiritually. Why are they spiritually starving? Why am I spiritually starving so much of the time? Well, here's the killer. It's because I am, it's because they are not feeding off Jesus. There he is, waiting to feed me in the word of God, the Bible, in our fellowship on a Sunday, in home group, in Altogether Tuesday, in that keen Christian book, in that blog article, which I know is going to encourage me. He's there waiting to feed me, and yet there I am, moping around, complaining that I feel spiritually hungry refusing to go to him that's a tragedy and it gets worse because sometimes I don't hunger for Jesus because I'm snacking elsewhere where I shouldn't be snacking I don't know about you but I do Facebook isn't it interesting that the noun used for that blurb of Facebook on my on my thread is a feed isn't that interesting It promises to feed me. When was the last time you were fed by Facebook a square meal? I'm not sure I can ever think of a time. Uh, Twitter, I'm not on Twitter. I imagine it has the same addictive qualities. Or or BBC News app, or BBC Sport, or, or that magazine that you love reading. 
even a good novel or a good album listening to on the hi-fi, whatever. But so often I snack on those things. It's not that they're wrong. I think they're very useful in their right place, but they're not going to feed me spiritual bread. And so there I am lining up, trying to fill myself up with spiritual candy floss. That's all it is. And it tastes sweet to start with, doesn't it? But it doesn't fill me up. And I have this deep hunger, therefore, persisting in my soul. And I bypass the spiritual bakery on the way to the candy floss store every time. Do you do that? You know, in our rooted youth group, a few few of you guys are here. But it it is an amazing thing to see. Some of you guys in rooted are really feeding off Jesus, the bread of life. Some of them are. But many aren't. And it is an amazing thing to see those who feed, it's the same in church, those who feed grow and live and have a vitality about them. It's amazing. But those who don't, they starve spiritually. And I just want to say, in rooted, I want to say this evening, feed on the Lord Jesus Christ, will you? Will you say that to me over tea and coffee? Don't go for the spiritual candy floss this week. Go for the spiritual bakery. Go to Jesus, because he is the bread of life, and with him you will never go hungry again. Our penultimately complete provision. Excessive, complete Isn't it fascinating to note that there were 12 baskets left over in verse 13? Not only is that a number for completeness in the Bible, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles, but it would have been one basket for each apostle to pick up the leftovers. I think that's that's quite interesting. It would have been one great visual aid for each one of the apostles to look down into and recall, I didn't trust him to provide. It seems so unlikely, but there is. Here's, Here's my whole basket full of heaven's hovis. Here it is. Great visual aid that Jesus offers complete provision. You know, one of my favorite titles for God in the Old Testament is my portion. My portion. God, my portion. I don't know. There may be folk amongst us this evening who are fearful of the future or of this week even. Perhaps you're approaching a big change, Ali. New job, new home, whatever it might be. Can I say Jesus is your portion? He will be enough for you. Or perhaps you're in an unhappy marriage in some area, or you're unhappily single and have been for a while. Can I say Jesus is your portion? He is enough for you. Perhaps you have a long-term mental illness, long-term physical illness, or your parents are ill. I say Jesus is your portion. He is enough. Always will be. I am the bread of life. Now finally, as I close, he is life-giving provision. Life-giving provision. It's largely hidden from us in our supermarket cling film food culture. But put starkly, there is a brutal equation at the center of every meal that you and I will ever have. And it's this. Either I die or it dies. Either I die or it dies. Now, 99% of the time, and I hope this is normally the case, it's already dead. But whether it's a lamb or a lettuce leaf, a cow or a cabbage, it has died so that we can live. And that would have been a very obvious equation at the heart of Jesus' agrarian society. Have a look at the end of verse 50. 
Jesus is the bread which one may eat and not die. In other words, eating Jesus keeps us alive. Have a look at the end of verse 51. This bread is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. In other words, either I die or he dies. It's one or the other. And Jesus says to us this evening, spiritually speaking, I am the only foodstuff which is volunteering right now to die for you so that you can live. I'm the only one sticking my hand up and saying me. And what a meal I will provide for you. It will be simply divine. And you will never go hungry ever again. Either I die or he dies. And friends, if we're a Christian here this evening, can I say he's already chosen his path. He's chosen to die. He has died. And he lives now in heaven. Can I say, therefore, we are absolutely safe in him. He's chosen for us to live for eternity. I am the bread of life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we ask for forgiveness when we go to spiritual candy floss instead of your bread, instead of you. We ask for forgiveness for the times when we come to you because we think you'll be useful to us more than the times when you're precious to us. We ask for forgiveness when we're proud and we think you need only educate us when really you need to save us. And Jesus, we pray that this week would be a great week of being satisfied by you. Teach us what it means to believe in you, to eat you and feed off you. And as we have communion just in a few moments' time, would that be a great reminder of all you are to us? For Jesus' name's sake, amen.